This past year, as we were reflecting on what to do, we decided to, to look at a series that we're calling Old Theology for Current Times. Really, that's as we looked at this past year, there's just right, societal upheaval. Uh, we're looking and we see the news, you watch the news, even if you don't, you hear of the nations planning and plotting and raging. There's uncertainty in areas that for a long time, for many of us in this country, we're sure. Um, the expectation of being healthy. I don't know how many parents are out, out there re- resonate with this, but I mean, prior to this year, right, I was like outraged if my kid got a cold. It's like, this is not fair. This isn't supposed to happen. Something is wrong. Illness. And now we've had that bubble popped just a little bit. Uh, or even so-called financial security as we look at the ups and downs of the world's markets and currencies and all of those things. And As Pastor Aaron and I sat thinking about this, we just wanted to open Sunday School by being reminded of what is timeless and essential amidst so much that's wavering. I just want to read a few verses to you just briefly. Just listen. Don't try to catch up by turning there. Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. John 6, 68, Peter answered him after the famous interaction in John 6. The miracle there, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. Christ praying in his high priestly prayer in John 17 says this to the Father, I have given them, that is his disciples, your word, And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And lastly, 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25, as Peter, quoting Isaiah, says, For you... To the Christians have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Now, these are more than simple affirmations of a high view of Scripture. They're not less than that, but they're more. They're declarations of what is primary for our spiritual life, our devotion to God, our spiritual vitality, our effectiveness in service, and every other aspect of a Christian's life is connected to our understanding of Christ's word. These declarations stand behind this Sunday School series, which is intended to help you and help us consider how our old theology Old being the timeless, the, the, the ancient word that we have, helps us to find fresh application in current times. That is to say how the timeless truths from God's word, from which our theology is derived, apply to life and ministry in early 2021. Now, we're, As we set up this class, I've given you some preliminary definitions there. That's not to make this any sort of academic exercise because we're going to use these words are a part of life and ministry here at MRBC. You've heard these things, no doubt, many times. 
But as we talk about what is practical theology, which is where we're headed this morning to introduce our series, it's important for us to have in mind maybe some of the differences. Why say practical theology? Um, So exposition, the setting forth of what the Bible teaches, what we do here at Mission Road Bible Church in our worship services. Exegesis, that is the process of bringing out the meaning of the Bible that then is expounded in exposition. Doctrine, the particular teachings of the Bible that we get from exegesis. Systematic theology, Defined somewhat different ways, but simply what the whole Bible teaches about a given subject or the logical arrangement of teachings or the doctrines of Scripture. And then practical theology, which is the application of doctrine and systematic theology toward the end of wise living. And worldview, what people in a community take. So for us, what what we as Christians are to take as realities, the, the map that we have to to govern our lives. Now, the focus of this Sunday school class is practical theology. Now, Pastor Adam's been giving me a hard time every time I say that because it, it implies that there's a category of theology that's impractical, and that's not actually what we're saying. So I just want to clarify, right? It's not to be taken to imply that the topics we're covering in here are really practical, but every other category of theology, completely impractical, right? We have the corner the market cornered on practicality. No, that's not, that's not the point, right? We're not contrasting irrelevant theology, how many angels can dance on a pinhead sort of things, with relevant theology. That's not the point, right? Theology is practical. It's not made practical. John Murray said this, the most transcendent truths of the gospel have a direct bearing upon how the life of the believer is to be lived. We have a distorted conception of the relation of doctrine to life if we think that the most transcendent truths of the faith are impractical in their bearing upon the most menial tasks of our vocation. So practical theology is taking even the most transcendent truths we have in Scripture and bringing them to bear on daily life. It's, it's about practice, not about meaningful theology versus speculative theology, but about practice, about life, about how you and I are to walk after Christ in accordance with the sound teachings that we have in his word. So when we consider practical theology or or what we've framed up this Sunday school class about, we, we mean to simply ask this, how does the Bible tell me to think? Or how does what the Bible teaches shape my thinking, my believing, my doing in relationship to a particular issue? So the focus in our time will be more on the so what and then therefore of what Christ says in his word than it is about unpacking basic Bible doctrine. So said another way, we want to say if, if such and such is true, then how should I respond to this particular circumstance? Or for example, if the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, how should I respond to government decisions I don't agree with? If the Bible teaches that I'm to walk by the spirit and not carry out the deeds of the flesh, how should I conduct myself on social media? Okay, those things, putting theology into practice. So the goal, the goal of this class, excuse me, is to grow in our understanding of how the implications of theology apply to our everyday experiences. That's the point. We want to be what Lewis and Demarest and their integrative theology say, the theologically reflective. We want to be theologically reflective Those, those that are theologically reflective, grow in seeing all of life, individually and collectively, from the perspective of God's revealed truth. That's the idea. That's what we want to press into in this class. So let me give you first just 
set the stage with some good reasons for a devoted consideration of practical theology. Just briefly, a couple of these, again, some is used very specifically there and later in your outline. Some, not all. You can probably come up with better ones, but these are just a couple that I've been thinking of. Number one is that it imitates a biblical pattern. So thinking about practical theology, which is taking doctrine and seeing how that matters for how we live, it imitates a biblical pattern. Look at Matthew 6, or consider with me Matthew 6, just briefly. Matthew 6, 25, Christ says this, For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. So, clear instruction for us, right? My NASB heading says, The cure for anxiety. Well, in verse 26, we get the command to not be anxious right? Or the, the, the ultimate reason that's going to be given. But if we ask the question, why? Okay, I get it. We're not supposed to be anxious, but why? Well, Christ tells us, and the answer is theological, right? That's what the entire rest of his explanation is. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet, the theological point, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Why not to be anxious? Well, God's creative power, God's goodness, God's care and concern for his children— God's plans for sanctifying believers. It's where we get toward the end of that text when he says that seek the kingdom and and righteousness. So theological realities motivate a response. Theology or doctrine is used in scripture as the basis for particular thinking, believing, and doing. Another example, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Why be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord? How do we know that our toil is not in vain? Well, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's because of the revelation that Christians will be resurrected with imperishable bodies for an eternal inheritance. So all of that wonderful doctrine about your and my future resurrection based on Christ's resurrection is then used for this very important therefore, which says, based on all of that doctrine, let's apply it. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. So that's just an example of a pattern where we see theological realities motivating practical response and practical application. A second reason, and that is that it helps us to correctly and appropriately apply Scripture. Practical theology helps us to appropriately apply Scripture. God's Word is not given to us in the form of a reference manual for all of life's questions. While specific passages always apply, okay, every passage of your Bible, every, 
every contained unit of scripture that intends to communicate God's truth is applicable, okay? I'm not saying that it's not. What I am saying, though, is that that was not given to us as a reference manual for all of life's questions. So when we start with complex questions, we often can't find, you don't go to your concordance and look for a particular answer to a particular current issue and then find like a dictionary or encyclopedia entry in God's word that then tells you how to think about that. So you may find the word government in, in a concordance, but it's going to take you to verses that have terminology of governance in them. It's not going to tell you how to think about government in the 21st century. Okay? That's not the way God gave us his word. It's different than that. So, for example, you hear of a tornado that rips through and devastates a small town. In this illustration, you've heard about this, okay? It's not your house. How should a Christian reflect and respond to such things? Listen to the, these, these texts of Scripture. In Job 1, 18 and 19, a great wind strikes the house that kills Job's children, right? Evidently in Job, because of Satan. In Luke 13, 4, Christ responds to a question about a tragedy at the Tower of Siloam by saying this to the people who were there asking him about it. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those who weep. So which verse, right? Which verse in our dictionary approach to scripture are you going to go to to think about a tornado that devastates a small town? right? Not any one of those in isolation. I hope that's obvious, right? And not just those probably, but those are going to be a part of a fabric of building a quilt, so to speak, of doctrine that helps us think rightly about those things in a practical way. We wouldn't simply, well, we could attribute it to the work of Satan per Job 1. We could use it as a reminder of impending judgment per Luke 13. We could mourn loss and grieve with the grieving. All of those would apply, in various avenues and in various circumstances, and we would add other truth to this particular question. So a single proof text won't cut it, and that's where practical theology comes in, which is to say how the whole counsel of God helps us see the world the way he wants us to see it, to see our experiences the way he wants us to see them, and thus respond the way he wants us to respond. So in this class, for example, we may ask, what does the Bible say about how to respond to a government that is both an instrument of good, rightly bearing the sword to uphold justice, and also an instrument of evil, allowing for and even promoting the murder of the unborn. That's a complex question. And God's word helps us answer that, but not like an encyclopedia. You don't find that in the back and then find the answer to that. You have theology that is brought to bear on that question. Or what does the Bible say about church attendance when technology now allows me to live stream services from my favorite churches, listen to dozens of sermons from my favorite preachers? How does our ecclesiology inform how we approach that that issue? The Bible speaks to those things, but not in the way that we're accustomed to getting and, and downloading information in our day and age, right? There is no, well, there actually might be a Wikipedia page for those questions, okay? But that's not how we're intended to get at these things, okay? So rather, for questions such as these, we seek to systematically apply what the whole Bible teaches to a given topic. Here's just an example of our plans for the next 12 or so weeks, right? We want to consider God's sovereignty as it relates to government, trials, finances. 
We want to consider how the teaching that we're to be as pilgrims and aliens affect how we live in 2021 in our communities. We want to consider what the Bible teaches about persecution and how that shapes our lives. We want to consider how eschatology affects the present, how ecclesiology impacts our view of the church in the age of live stream, Zoom, other content, how anthropology informs our view of neighbors, justice, racism, abortion, other things, how scripture calls us to pray in 2021, and a reminder that scripture ultimately is sufficient for our sanctification. And maybe there will be other topics worked in if Aaron or I need to call any audibles, right? So that's just an overview briefly of where we're headed. So now let's look at some benefits. This is my best effort at convincing you that this topic is worth your time, which is always ironic because I'm talking to people who've chosen to come to Sunday school. So this is for you to tell others why they ought to come to Sunday school. All right, what are some good, some benefits derived from a devoted consideration of practical theology? Some benefits. Again, there may be more, but these are the ones that stood out the most to me. First, manifold growth. Manifold growth. I want to look at, turn your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. You can look at the other verses there on your own, outside of this time. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 tells us to be mature in our thinking. We're to grow in our thinking. 1 Timothy 4, 6 says that Timothy was going to be constantly nourished on sound doctrine. But I want to draw your attention to a profound prayer from Paul, the opening of his letter to the church in Philippi. Starting verse 9, he's, it's hard to jump into this opening, but he's saying, and this I pray. So that's what we're focusing on, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays that their love is going to abound, that it's going to be rich, that it's going to grow, that it's going to spread, and that love is going to be characterized by real knowledge and discernment and for the purpose that those Christians that are growing in that way may approve or discern what's good, what's excellent. And why is it important that they do that, right? So that they would themselves be sincere and blameless until Christ comes back, when ultimately they're going to stand before him having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which ultimately will give Christ glory. It's quite a prayer. With regard to the growth that we're emphasizing here in this astounding prayer, Paul simply says that he asks God to bring this about, love for God and others, right, the two foremost commandments, so love, informed by a knowledge of God's works and his ways, theology, which along then with insight for everyday living, that's where we have this notion of all discernment, that is your insight, that is this topic we're talking about, this practical theology, and that results in or that allows us, that growth promotes our ability to discern what is best to choose what is best in every area of life. And so this prayer reminds us that we have the responsibility to grow in our thinking about God. 
That's one of the reasons we're doing this. And also that we're dependent on God. Remember, Paul's praying for this as well. That we're dependent on God to bring about this knowledge and insight-infused love that overflows into wise living. So the elders of MRBC, we want every single member of MRBC to grow in their knowledge of Scripture, to develop a biblical worldview, to be increasingly able to bring the teachings of God's Word, to bring the doctrines that come from exegesis to bear in every area of life. That's, that's our desire. And this class, that's, a, that's one benefit of this. Practical theology helps us grow. It brings about manifold growth in all kinds of different areas, as Paul prays for in Philippians 1. A second benefit, stable convictions. Stable convictions. The word instability just always coming to my mind as we reflect on the last year. So if I say it a lot, I apologize. But stability seems like a prized thing in our current day and age. So we derive or can derive from a devoted consideration of practical theology, stable convictions. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Practical theology builds moorings that keep you from being tossed to and fro in your life. Practical theology builds moorings that keep you, keep you and I from being tossed to and fro by the winds of every strange doctrine. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is like Philippians 1. There's so much stacked upon principle and then a result and then a, a reason and then a further explanation and then a, an end goal and it's, it's very rich. But just look at the stable convictions. So these moorings, where do these moorings come from? Well, if you look at the progression in this passage, Christ gave to the church shepherds and instructors. And that is for the purpose of, verse 12, equipping the saints, the whole body, for the work of service, for ministry, for serving one another, for discipleship. All of that brings about the building up, the edification of the body of Christ. And we say, how long is that to continue? Like, do you go to an introductory class at church and you get your 12-week fundamentals of the faith class and then you're never taught for the rest? No, not at all, right? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature men to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How long do we do this? 
until perfection, until you behold the risen Christ and you are like him. In other words, we do this as long as we're on this earth. What's the result of that? Verse 14, this is where we get our stable convictions. As a result, we're no longer to be children, so we're to be mature. Earlier, we're to be mature in our thinking, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, right? We're not to be children anymore, doctrinally speaking. We're no longer, because children are tossed here and there by waves. The illustration is of a, an unmoored ship or vessel being tossed around by the waves. We're no longer to be that way as a result of teaching and equipping and the work of ministry in the church as we're being built up into Christ. What comes out of not being tossed around and having stable moorings? Well, we speak the truth and love to one another as we continue to grow into Christ who holds everything together and ultimately in whom we have our unity and our wholeness. So these moorings, these stable convictions come from doctrine. Stability that comes from teaching, which then comes from the equipped saints doing work in the church, in one another's lives, brings about stability, stable convictions. You're no longer tossed around. You're no longer blown around by everything. So these complex questions in our day, that strange doctrine, strange responses to those things don't, don't blow you around. You're not a you know, little life raft in the middle of a vast ocean that's about to be destroyed by stormy winds. Instead, you're a moored vessel with deep, stable convictions. And those moorings bring stability to you, but as we saw, they also bring stability to the church as you're doing the work of ministry in one another's lives. And that is then the third benefit, which is fruitful discipleship. Another benefit that is comes from or is derived from this devoted consideration of practical theology is fruitful discipleship. Listen to her turn, if you would, Romans 15. You can listen to it and then turn ahead to 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to read them both to you briefly. Romans 15, 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. That's where we get the phrase, competent to counsel. Paul says he knows that the church there in Rome, that the Christians there are able, that they're full of goodness, that they've been filled with knowledge, and as a result, that they're able also to admonish one another. Now look, Keep that in mind and then look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is what happens, right? When you do a topical introduction to a topical series, there's no boundaries on the field and we're just all over the place. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brethren... Admonish, hear the word, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. These two verses are classic verses that encourage and call for discipleship in the body of Christ. Counsel to one another. Discipleship is simply spiritual friendship, helping one another follow Christ. 
And according to these verses, we're to be committed, right, to actively and intentionally apply Scripture and doctrine. That is to say, let's say it this way, all that Jesus commanded us, right, in the Great Commission. That's part of the Great Commission. Make disciples teaching them all that Christ commanded. So that is to be our aim in this work of ministry. And here we admonish one another. We encourage one another. We warn one another. We help one another. That's discipleship. And to do that well requires that you're equipped. That you know how to bring the teachings of Scripture to bear on your life and on the lives of your brothers and sisters. And that's why we're considering practical theology. Look at Titus chapter 2. Paul is about to give instructions that we call and see as sort of this classic discipleship paradigm. But he starts this off by telling Titus, But as for you, Titus 2.1, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. After that, all of these instructions reveal that discipleship flows from and is built around sound doctrine. Discipleship is bringing practical theology to bear. And we see throughout Scripture, and we're not going to even turn here. I promise I'm not, we're not doing sword drill this morning. Husbands to wives in 1 Corinthians 14. Husbands are to be able to teach, to instruct, to help, to, to encourage their wives in doctrine. Parents to children, Deuteronomy 6, just as one example. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, you see men who are able to entrust things to faithful men who are then also able to entrust them to others. And then here in Titus 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, teaching sound doctrine, practical theology and life of the church so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. These are discipleship passages, and all of that instruction, all of that teaching from one to another, from older men to younger men, from older women to younger women, from parents to children, from husbands to wives, all of that is practical theology or at least this, the health of that and the fruitfulness of that is dependent on our ability to rightly bring Scripture to bear. To say it this way, theological training should fill us, right, considering God's Word, considering practical theology, should fill us and then overflow into the relationships we have in the local church. And that's back what we saw in Ephesians 4. That's the paradigm. So here, from your pastors to you, from you to others. And so as we consider practical theology, the perspective that we're given on life by Scripture, it should characterize our relationships in the body of Christ. The application of truth should characterize how you and I interact with one another all the time. That, that doesn't mean that, that we all have an assigned time to sit down and work through Grudem systematic theology, although it may mean that. But it doesn't mean that that's all that discipleship clearly. This means that when you pass in the hallways and you're talking about your week, that you're prepared to bring truth to bear on one another's lives. Maybe for encouragement. Maybe for admonition. 
maybe to rebuke unruliness, maybe to help and be compassionate toward the weak, whatever the Lord does in those conversations. But our job is to bring this to bear. One of the I was thinking about this example actually during the first service. He would probably be embarrassed by this. He certainly won't remember this. The first time I met Rick uh, was, wow, 2011. When did he come? July 2011? August? Somewhere in there? It was like really close to when he first came. And my, uh, actually, Holly and I weren't even married. And we came over, uh, there was a concert here. I think Enfield was here. Maybe before you got here, Aaron. I mean, that's way back. We just heard nine years. Um, anyway, so somehow, like back here in this aisle, Rick and I have this interchange. Never met him before. He walks back, and you know Rick, so it's just like he's immediately my best friend. And uh, so he's, hey, how are you? What are you doing? Are you in ministry? What are you? And as I said, yeah, you know, I'm a, you know, could barely get out words to fill in the spaces in between his sentences. Uh, I was, a, you know, a youth pastor in, uh, at a little church in Blue Springs. And he, like, in this interchange, he doesn't know me from anybody. And he's like, are you married? And I'm like, about to be married because I was with Holly. He's like, and immediately he jumps into, stay pure. Stay pure. Temptate. You're going to be tempted. Stay pure. You will ruin your ministry. Like all of this is happening right back there the first time I met him. And there's like a crowd around. Okay. But like truth was just like, like it wasn't this sort of stale, like formal, like he was just, hey, here's a guy claims he's in ministry. I don't even know him, but this is true. And he's like discipling me in the aisle. Okay. That's an example of this just overflow of truth in our relationships, in our interactions that should characterize Christian fellowship differently than uh, other relationships are even able to do. And so that's one of the reasons that we want to do this series, to, to bring about, to encourage, I should say, fruitful discipleship in this body, to consider these things. When I end with, uh, the quote is here in your handout. This is from D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord, which is on our book list. 10.15 is when we end, right? Okay. I keep thinking it's 10.30, and so I keep, I'm just full disclosure, I keep looking like, man, I've got some time to kind of swim around a little bit. I don't. So, good. Thanks, Aaron, for keeping me on track. Um, D.A. Carson's book, How Long, O Lord, which is in our, in our book list, highly encourage you reading that. He calls that book, it's, it's prescriptive medicine. It's not something that you pull off the shelf in the midst of deep grieving and trial and loss. It's to prepare you for that. So just a little clarification there. But he so helpfully articulates why we need to use our theology. That is, employ doctrine in considering practical theology. He says, in addition to holding that Christian beliefs are true and consistent, which I hope we would all affirm, the Christian, to find comfort in them, must learn how to use them. Christian beliefs are not to be stacked in the warehouse of the mind. They're to be handled and applied to the challenges of life and discipleship. Otherwise, they are incapable of bringing comfort and stability, godliness and courage, humility and joy, holiness and faith. It's a wonderful way of simply saying we need doctrine in everyday life. And we need to think deeply and critically about how the teaching that we receive so regularly from God's word comes to bear in every aspect 
of your life.